Well, we're big rock singers. We got golden fingers, and we're loved everywhere we go. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers for March 2018, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Joe Hagan about the new book, Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. The story of Jan Wenner, Rolling Stone's founder, editor, and publisher, and the pioneering era he helped curate is told here for the first time in glittering and glorious detail. Joe Hagen provides us with a backstage pass to storied concert venues and rock star hotel rooms. He tells never-before-heard stories about the lives of rock stars and their handlers, and he details the daring journalism and office politics that accompanied the startup. He animates the drug and sexual appetites of the era, and he reports on the politics of the last 50 years that were often chronicled in the pages of Rolling Stone magazine. Jan Wenner kept an exhaustive archive of all of his Rolling Stone magazine records and correspondence. He gave Joe Hagen full access, but right before Hagen's book was published, Wenner distanced himself from the book, said some pretty negative things about the author. I began my interview with Joe Hagen by asking him, How did Jan Wenner's comments make him feel, especially right before the book was ready to come out? Well, I was unhappy about it. I mean, um, on some level, I knew that he wouldn't be happy with all of it, Um, that there was going to be, there's always some natural friction, right, between a biographer and a living subject. It's a complicated um, scenario to begin with. Uh, But, you know, when it actually happens, it's upsetting. Um, But I kind of know that I wrote a true story, and um, I true story isn't always the one that uh, the subject is going to like. You know, I mean, if you think back to four or five years ago, there was a book uh, about Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, and in it, uh, Steve Jobs did not come off as a saint, <laughs> you know, and uh, not even likable, really, but that doesn't take away from uh, his sort of iconic stature, and, and I think this book is maybe similar to that in that, you know, Jan has a lot of uh, warts uh, in his life and, you know, kind of a, a, a some fractious, fractious relationships and, and uh, different aspects of his kind of um, life came out in the book that he probably didn't uh, like. And, uh, you know, uh, the reality is what it is, but uh, hopefully he'll come around one day. It's an absolutely fascinating story into this. I mean, my goodness, how many decades have I been subscribing to Rolling Stone? I mean, I still read a ton of other music magazines, but for my wife, she's the only one she cares about to this day. It's like, save me the Rolling Stone, honey, when you're done. It's just, and if it's late one week, where's where is it? Come on, I, I mean, she she reads yeah. it faithfully, and I do as well. And and growing up as a kid, that this this was it. I mean, we did have a great magazine from Detroit, Cream Magazine, which started. Around that that time frame, but Rolling Stone from the very beginning was always the the most essential read. And sadly, there was that time period early on in the days of Rolling Stone where it seemed like every other week you'd see a, a rock, rock icon who'd passed away who made the cover of the magazine, Jimi Hendrix or, or Janis Joplin. How, how did this magazine get started by Jan Wenner? What gave him the idea to start Rolling Stone some fifty years ago? Well, he was um, very well-placed in time and history. I mean, he was 
in San Francisco in 1967. There was a, a renaissance going on there, the rock and roll revolution with the psychedelic rock and the, uh, the summer of love. And he was really the kind of the right person to do it. He was not himself a hippie. He was, you know, very infatuated with the music and in the scene, but he was a little bit outside of it. And he, indeed, he was actually asked to edit a, a new rock magazine by another guy in, in San Francisco at the time. And it didn't really, uh, he, the guy couldn't get the money together because he was sort of a notorious, you know, he was a, he was a hippie. He, was, he couldn't um, pull it together, you know. Uh, but Jan was the kind of guy that could, and he took the idea, hustled up the money, found a printing press, got some people to work for him, and made it happen. And, you know, so you've heard the, the old line that, you know, 99% of geniuses just work. Well, that was Jan, right? He really made it happen. And uh, what he did was, is he made a really credible journalistic um, newspaper magazine that was like a window into this San Francisco world that everybody was infatuated with. Everybody wanted to know what was going on in San Francisco, the, the, the drugs, the sexuality, the art, the music, every, and it was all just um, so compelling to, to young people at that time, and he made a perfect window into it for everybody to see it and feel it and understand it. And, you know, it, it was more than just music, as he said in the first issue. He says, this is, you know, it's more about, uh, more than just music, it's uh, all the things and values that the music embraces. And... That was a really key insight because it was a whole cultural wave that was happening, not just, you know, a few rock bands. Mm. And he surrounded himself with some incredibly talented people, starting with Ralph J. Gleason, uh, founding editor. Do I have that right? Yeah, he was co-founder of the magazine. He was really Jan's mentor. He was a sort of fabled jazz critic. He was, you know, twice Jan's age at the time. He was... Uh, a, a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, and he was considered sort of like this, um, you know, the sort of Socrates of of the music scene. And like all the young people would go to him to learn about the history of jazz or get some deep thoughts on Bob Dylan. And, and so Jan was one of these people who sort of gathered around him and learned from him. And, and this guy sort of set Jan on his path, you know, by teaching him how to uh, you know what stories were interesting. How to how to put the newspaper together and where to get advertising and all the kind of basics. You know, and uh, that was he was an incredibly important figure in the history of Rolling Stone. Was Rolling Stone magazine a, a success immediately as soon as it started publishing, Joe? And I'm also wondering what did the Rolling Stones think of this upstart magazine named Rolling Stone? Were they happy with that? Well, no. That's uh, sort of one of the more fascinating things that I discovered in my reporting, which is that uh, as soon as Rolling Stone published its first issue, uh, a lawyer for the Rolling Stones issued a cease and desist order and said, you can't publish this magazine. You're, you know, exploiting our trademark. You're benefiting commercially from our name. And uh, so this became sort of a point of contention uh, right off the bat. And uh, you didn't actually see, there were no Rolling Stones interviews in Rolling Stone magazine for the first several months, and in fact, not only that, but Rolling Stone magazine um, trashed the Rolling Stones album that had came out that year, which was her, uh, the Satanic Majesty's Request, and um, 
it took, you know, later Jan and Mick Jagger get together and um, sort of work out a, a, a situation where they can publish a British version of Rolling Stone in which Mick Jagger was half owner. Huh. And uh, it was really kind of a fascinating discovery for me, and really it informed the next five decades of their relationship with the band. I mean, in a way, because of the name, they were in like a shotgun marriage together, you know. And uh, But it benefited both of them, uh, you know, to different degrees through the years. And, you know, their relationship was up and down. Uh, but it was all sort of revolved around this sort of, um, this name similarity. I still remember picking up my copy of Rolling Stone with their incredible coverage of the horrific Altamont Music Festival and uh, picked it up at my local record store and took the bus home from school. It, it's still to this day one of the most riveting articles or series of articles, the coverage on, on Altamont, and it was it's just so utterly shattering. And of course, this is the, the ill-fated festival where where there were deaths uh, at, at the fest, which was headlined by the Rolling Stones. I imagine uh, Rolling Stones' coverage of Altamont must have put some more extra strain on Jan's relationship with Mick and Keith and company. Well, sure. Well, this was one of the more sort of Shakespearean you know, moments in, in the book because um, what happened was that that partnership with the British version of Rolling Stone that I spoke of had just dissolved only like a month uh, before. And this was a very disappointing for Jan, you know, that their business venture had, dis- had dissolved. And, and it was mainly because Mick Jagger had sort of relinquished uh, control of it to like a groupie of his. And, and it sort of uh, drove the British version of Rolling Stone into the ground, much to Jan's chagrin. And so then suddenly the Stones show up in San Francisco 24 hours before they're supposed to have a free concert. They don't even have a place for it. And apparently Jan was like involved in sort of trying to advise them or direct them to a lawyer who famously found Altamont Speedway. Uh, and so they quickly set up this whole scenario, and the Hell's Angels have been conscripted as the security, quote-unquote. And this is where the disastrous, you know, uh, business begins to go down and and what's amazing about it is all of Jan's writers came back from that concert including Greil Marcus the critic uh, and we're like this is the worst thing we've ever seen it's the end of the rock and roll you know era it's the end of the 60s it, it literally was the end of the 60s December 69 and Jan has a decision to make you know am I going to try to ignore this or downplay it or are we going to cover it and he is advised by Ralph Gleason that he has to cover this, that this is the moment, is not, this is a journalistic moment. And he, Jan says, okay, we're going to cover it from top to bottom, and we're going to lay the blame. And the blame, they put pretty squarely on Mick Jagger and the Stones. And it was a huge expose, and it really defined Altamont for, for you and for a whole generation you know, what it meant and what happened there and who was to blame. And it, even, it definitely um, hurt his relationship with Mick for, for quite some time. But um, more importantly, it helped Rolling Stone win their first National Magazine Award. And so it's kind of an amazing tale, really. Mm. Tell us about Jan's rather complicated, to say the least, relationship with, with John Lennon as well, which had major ups and downs. It's just, a, it's just fascinating to, to read about uh, his relationship with John Lennon. 
Well, that, you know, John Lennon is probably the single most important rock and roll figure in the history of Rolling Stone. He was on the first issue, on the cover, and, uh, you know, the first time that Rolling Stone really made a splash with controversy and, and, and sort of got on a lot of people's radar was in 1968, in the one-year anniversary of the magazine, they published a nude photo of John and Yoko, you know, standing in a studio. And uh, this was a, had originally supposed to be the cover of their album, but it was uh, banned, you know, or, or they wouldn't put it out in the U.S., so Rolling Stone published it. And after that, uh, John and Yoko became kind of, uh, you know, went into kind of a partnership with Jan to publicize themselves through Rolling Stone as John and Yoko broke away from the Beatles, uh, or John broke away from the Beatles. And in, in this way, Rolling Stone was a vehicle for them to kind of get their message across. And they thought Jan was in Rolling Stone was the perfect venue for that. And eventually they meet and um, have this kind of amazing experience, all of them in a movie theater watching the documentary Let It Be, which is about this sort of acrimonious recording session in which the Beatles are all uh, obviously about to break up. <laughs> and, mm. and in the middle of this movie, uh, John and Yoko are crying, and then Jan and his wife are crying, and it was this real emotional thing. And John and Yoko had been in primal scream therapy together, and so they were really emoting at the time. And after this, John gives Jan his first, he gives him the big interview, you know, the big interview with John Lennon, probably the most famous interview ever with John Lennon, in which he talks all about what it was like to be in the Beatles, and he's full of a lot of mixed emotions and anger, and he directs a lot of his anger at his former bandmates, and it was just this epic interview that was published in early 1971. Well... Next thing you know, Jan decides, oh, gosh, this is such an epic interview. I need to publish it as a book. And he goes ahead and publishes it uh, as a book called Lennon Remembers, and a book that's been published again and again over the years. But uh, John Lennon had asked him not to publish that book and, in fact, insisted upon it, said, listen, th that interview really is mine. You know, you and I agreed that we would publish it in Rolling Stone, but the interview is, is mine. Well, Jan said, well, no, look, I'm a publisher it's mine. So they have this little tug of war over who owns this very powerful interview. And Jan publishes it against John Lennon's will, and John Lennon never speaks to him again. And um, forever after, called that book Lennon Regrets, he would refer to that book as. So it's really kind of amazing. Well, and so this really adds an extra layer of kind of um, drama and emotion to the famous Rolling Stone. Uh, cover that was published after John Lennon's death, his assassination in December 1980. Um, you know, the famous nude uh, of John Lennon wrapped around Yoko Ono, yeah. a photo that was taken only a few hours before he was assassinated. And so Jan, despite having had a, a bad relationship with John Lennon through the years, um, ends up making him into an icon with this cover. Just incredible, incredible. What, what during what period of Rolling Stone's history was their circulation the, the highest? I'm just curious. You know, I would say in the 80s and 90s they had a very large, powerful circulation. You know, a million or more um, readers, and uh, this was a you know they were at the height of their powers financially. I wouldn't say they were at the height of their powers culturally. You know, 
those weren't the most well-remembered or well-regarded periods. And frankly, you know, they just had lost some of the lost touch a little bit with, you know, the the musical uh, music culture, and and a lot of that had to do with MTV had supplanted them. And now the ir- irony, though, is the success of MTV had minted a whole new generation of stars, and that made it easy for Rolling Stone to kind of benefit from that. They were able to easily know who the stars were and put them on the cover, right? And um, but they were, you know, they remained powerful for for many years, even after their the height of their powers were in the seventies, really, to be truthful. But tell us about uh, Jan Wenners again. I keep using the word "complicated" here. This complicated relationship with Mick Jagger and John uh, Lennon, and Jan uh, Wenners' own uh, complicated uh, personal life. It's, it's it's fascinating to to read it, and a lot of people may not be familiar with uh, the the struggles that he had in his personal life and and dealing uh, with this homosexuality, even though he he was married for quite a long time. Yeah, well, that becomes sort of a a crucial um, sort of drama in the book, which is that uh, the woman he was married to, Jane, Jane Winter, her family had put up a lot of the money to start Rolling Stone. And so there was this uh, sort of interesting tension there because they're sort of, um, well, they not sort of, they were uh, kind of married to this magazine, to this venture that they were together in. And yet uh, Jan was... Um, you know, closeted, and she uh, had enough evidence to know that uh, know that this was the case. But they, you know, they made it work. They had a kind of semi-open relationship, and they were able to. And in some ways, it benefited them. And she was certainly um, key to the success of Rolling Stone in ways that nobody had ever really articulated. And so that becomes a real central part of my book because she was somebody that was very, uh, she was very beautiful and smart and witty, and she had a lot of a, a appeal for um, for a lot of their social world, people in their social world. They were always very attracted to her and wanted to be around her. And so she becomes sort of um, like a salon host for them in some ways in their, in their Rolling Stone social world. And Jan sort of would transact a lot of these relationships for Rolling Stone interviews, you know, um, access to the rock stars and, and whatnot. And final question for you, Joe. That, and again, wow, wow, the, this timing is uh, uh, quite a coincidence here, but just recently Jan Wenner, who's 71 now, announced that he's selling his controlling share of Rolling Stone. Do, do you feel like the magazine is going to continue in, in its present form down the road? Well, listen, it may sell, and it will be a brand that somebody can try to reinvent and try to turn into something. You know, they could turn it into like a, a, a video company that, you know, um, touch, tries to touch base with all of their archival stuff that they have, you know, and like this documentary that's on HBO right now, there's all this wonderful kind of look back at all the incredible rock and roll music. And, you know, they could get a partner with people to make videos and stuff. But my feeling is that without Jan Winner, the magazine kind of loses, you know, a lot of its meaning. Because Rolling Stone was always the world, it's the expression of Jan Winner's worldview. It's really his yearbook. You know, it's his social calendar that drove the magazine all these years, and for good or bad. And uh, without it, it's hard to know what it would be. I mean, you and I both know that the, you know, the audience for this 
brand and for this magazine is probably like 35 and older, but below that, not a lot of younger people have a real connection with it. So they'd have to reinvent that connection somehow. Um, but my feeling is, you know, look at a magazine like Playboy was the, the entire world of, of Hugh Hefner. But without Hugh Hefner, it's just a kind of faded brand. And as sad as I am to say that, I don't know that Rolling Stone can have much meaning without Jan Winter around. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for March 2018. Our interview was with Joe Hagen about the book Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. How does it feel?